Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, episode six. I am Michael. I'm Greg. And I'm Sophie. Today we are doing Henry VI Part 2, and from what I've heard beforehand, this was not a popular choice, but you knew you were getting into this. Let us introduce our relationship to this play. Greg. This is probably the second time I read it, and I say that knowing I'd previously read all the plays, but I certainly didn't remember it. My only real relationship is the single famous line that we'll get to later on. Um, Yeah, I don't really give a shit about the War of the Roses, but I read it. (laughs) You read it twice. Sophie, what is your relationship with this play? Um, I don't have much of a relationship with this play. Um, I listened to it, uh, specifically the edition that has David Tennant as Henry. Um, it's available in Audible. I'm sure it's available in other places as well. Um, so I have a relationship with that in which I just watched a lot of Doctor Who when he was, uh, the Doctor. Tennant um, is amazing as a Shakespearean actor. Um, yeah. Anyone who hasn't seen his version of Hamlet is missing out. And um, also watched his uh, Good Omens, which is, again, fantastic. He really makes a good demon as well. Um, again, we're getting the sense of how much this play made an impact on us. We <laughs> have to immediately go on the actor's resume. <laughs> um, so I listened to it twice because I was pleasantly surprised at how short it was. Um, Three hours is short for a play, is it? I mean, that's that's my impression, yes, isn't it? Like, <laughs> No, it is one of Shakespeare's longer plays. Oh, is it? Okay, shit. Um because I kind of expected like five hours. Um, oh, this is. Remember, this is only the second part in a three. Part that might series. be why. Or that technically, four-part series because most people include. It just um, felt Richard. shorter. It really rushed along. Maybe, <laughs> but yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that I was able to finish it in under three hours or about three hours, considering the Fairy Queen felt a lot longer for perhaps shorter. I just I don't know. Yeah, that's the problem. Michael's been um, punishing us with such long and droll texts that even this one seems quicker. What long and droll texts? I mean, you have to blame Shakespeare for that. I'm happy to. Uh, I mentioned to my wife earlier this morning that sometimes I'm a little surprised Shakespeare became a success if he started with plays like this one. I mean, this was a massive success at the time. It was. It was. It was a huge success and was based on books that were really popular. And it was the first published Shakespeare. So now for my relationship with this play, like most people, well, I'd say that most people haven't heard of this play. They'd, they've heard of Henry IV and maybe they think that Henry VI is a typo. I have heard, I had heard of this play but only in the context of what light it shows on the other plays. But I would have to say that my deepest relationship to these characters in this play is by reading the manga Requiem of the Rose King, which is 
a retelling of Shakespeare's first history plays from the perspective of Richard III. And so we have a pretty boy, Richard III, seeming to fall into a romantic relationship with Henry VI. Uh, it is a, you must, you must read it. And if Greg will stop being an obstacle, maybe we will do it on this podcast. It's wild. It's great. It's absolutely buckwild insanity. It's it's magical. I might have that day off. And now for some biographical background. This stage of Shakespeare's career, I went through in more detail in the Taming of the Shrew episode. Uh, but when it comes to this play... We don't know the exact specifics of its background, and we don't particularly know whether it was Shakespeare who wrote it by himself or if he gave some minor contributions to it. I'd say that in the past, in the early years of Shakespeare criticism in the 1700s, people said, well, this is shit. Of course, Shakespeare had no hand in it. He gave, he gave a few go-overs to someone else's work. Nowadays, Techniques of authorship identification have grown up and become more sophisticated in using some linguistic analysis. People are still saying that maybe this was a collaboration with Shakespeare being most responsible for certain scenes or certain other scenes. And according to Anna Beer in her book, The Life of the Author William Shakespeare, at the time there was a vogue for what she calls patriotic history plays indeed openly xenophobic plays, you know, lots of English victories against those rotten foreigners, those rotten foreigners over there. But this play is a bit odd. Shakespeare is an odd subject because he wasn't choosing an English victory against those bloody foreigners. He was choosing to write his play about the War of the Roses, where English people fight English people, which adds a level of complexity. That's an innovation, wouldn't you say? No, it's, it's, it's a play about English people fighting English people. And, oh, look, it just happens that the Queen's family won. <laughs> Let, let's be honest. This is Shakespeare going down on Elizabeth I to ensure his place in history. I think you might want to rephrase that. No, no. That's exactly <laughs> what I meant to say. <laughs> Excellent. And, you know, whatever... Now, this play has not been uh, popular, let's say, since immediately after it was played and published. Its popularity has been going down, 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 up until the later half of the 20th century, where people have been trying to say, no, no, there's something something in here. It's worth reading. If uh, it's, it's not just bad, there's something in here. And Schoenbaum, in his William Shakespeare, A Compact Documentary Life, it does point out that this genuinely was incredibly popular when it was released. There is the fact that this is uh, the second part in a trilogy, a quadrology, if you want to count Richard III. So this is, I mean, it's not like today where Warner Brothers says, we're going to release a Batman film. Oh, you didn't like that one. Here's another Batman film. Oh, you didn't like that one either. Here's another one. And we're going to keep releasing these until you like them. Back here, the the theatre industry in London was relatively new. (laughs) 
if you want to play to get a sequel, you couldn't expect a sequel. People didn't do sequels really oh, look, back then. This play was also extremely popular amongst the literary crowd. Um, it it was published as oh, this huge long title that's basically known as the Contention. The and first it was, Contention of Henry the Sixth against Duke of York or something. Yeah, and it was reprinted multiple times. Yes, like, pirate printings. So which it's that means it must have been people, quite popular. Yes, for a pirate printing, it's not just that someone said, oh, I want to put my work out there. It's someone else saying, oh, this can make me money. Yeah, yeah exactly. So obviously it was very popular. And it, this story was clearly popular because there were multiple texts that Shakespeare could have drawn from because it had been written about so much. Um, so people were clearly interested in the story and... I'm, and, I'm sure it makes some sort of sense. And, you know, Greg, you're, you're saying that perhaps this play is overstuffed, but at least Schoenbaum believes that, that is what perhaps made it popular or what perhaps made it an artistic achievement. That up until this point, English theatre did not really have these kinds of massive multi-character historical epics. The only you know, multi-part, multiple parts of it, uh, that... Before this point, the only kinds of plays that really tried to do this were the mystery plays. You know, those stories that go through the Bible play by play by play. So Shakespeare is saying, let's do that about English history. A massive piece trying to show the entirety of this period of English history. I will believe you. (laughs) But when it comes to... Uh, yes, as we've been saying, this play has gone, let's say, down in its reputation, and that seems to happen immediately after Shakespeare's time. I mentioned before, but if you read, I'm using Shakespeare, The Critical Heritage, which is a survey of uh, Shakespearean criticism from the 1700s up until the 20th century. And most of it is basically these 17th, 18th century editors and critics saying how awful they think this play is. One of them says, he's comparing to Titus Andronicus, and he's saying, there is so much trash in the diction, even beneath the three parts of Henry VI. So the only good thing this guy has to say about Henry VI is that it is better than Titus Andronicus. Uh, I view that as being high praise, but apparently not to everyone. I was going to say I love Titus Andronicus. But I didn't actually have too much issue with the like the writing in Henry the Sixth. I, I thought the dialogue was good, and there were some quite brilliant lines and brilliant little monologues in it. So I, I don't want to trash it too badly. Um, certainly, you can tell even then that Shakespeare knew how to play with words. I just think, as a storyteller, he was still learning a lot. For me, like, this kind of feels like the actual first Shakespeare um, in that, okay, so I admittedly I didn't read, uh, what's the word, the, the Two Gentlemen of Verona, but I'm going by the listening of you of yous talking about it. <laughs> My God. The, going by the recordings of your review and talking about the two gentlemen of Verona. It didn't seem very good. Um, and the Taming of the Shrew, which I read with you, um, felt 
like he was trying, but he hadn't quite got there yet. Like, and also, while this one, Henry the Sixth, Part Two, feels to me like Shakespeare came back to it later and went, I liked this part. I'm very proud of this scene. So I'm going to try and put that into another play. And I'm really happy with how I did this, but I bet I can do better for later, for bits and pieces all across the board. Because um, there's one scene that reminds me of Hamlet. There's one scene that reminds me of uh, Macbeth. Lit. That's the word. Yes. Macbeth. Um, there's, so yeah, Hamlet, Macbeth. Um, Echoes of Aladdin. It is play. the beginning of his um, his fascination with the political thriller. Um, yeah, you know, and I, I watched. Uh, but yes, it, I, I think this is a prototype of all those later political thrillers. Is quite fair to see it as. Again, I've I've into what I think of this play, however, to add to Sophie, I don't just think this is the first Shakespeare play. I think this is the first genuinely good play that he has written. Those other two plays, maybe it's just that the comedies don't resonate with me as much. But this one, perhaps I put a higher premium on the writing style than you do, Greg, that I am willing to perhaps look over perhaps a very basic plot. But I'd say that when I was reading this, this was fundamentally the only play so far that has managed to actually keep me going through it. I mean, the first play of Shakespeare, we've done good plays by other people, but this is the one that's kept me going. Act one. We open just after Queen Margaret, Margaret of Anjou, has been brought from France to marry King Henry VI, as a way of a peace treaty between their two countries. Henry V, in the past generation, went over there, beat the French, but now there's a peace treaty, and people are not happy about it. The only person who's happy about it are the French and King Henry VI. All of his courtiers seem to think that Henry has just thrown away their ownership of France, has just thrown away their ownership of the towns of Maine and Anjou, all for the sake of this foreign woman. And I will say, first off, there are a lot of characters introduced in this first scene, a lot of characters, a lot of allegiances and a lot of motivations. So I am not going to go into them because not a lot of them are all that important. But did you have trouble getting acquainted with this mob of characters to begin with? I think I had the benefit of already knowing enough to know who were the characters to pay attention to. And Sophie, did reading Reckoning of the Rose King beforehand give you a good familiarity with all these characters? Nope. Okay, <laughs> I, I recognised Warwick, the name, but that was about it. Ah, the Dilf. The Dilf. Ugh. I don't like that word. Sounds bad. I knew from the beginning that York and Gloucester were the two to... York, Gloucester and Suffolk were the three to pay most attention to. Um, And I I think that was a fair thing to do. 
Um, but th- this is just a great example of how there's too much going on. Maybe you know, it works better on stage. Yeah, give it, give him a few years, and he cuts down King Lear to the three daughters and Gloucester, and that works so much better. It is Gloucester, right, in King Lear? Uh, son Edmund? Yes, Gloucester, yeah. yes. I mean, yeah. maybe this would be easier if maybe if this was like World War Two history for us. Maybe if, you know, I assume that in Shakespeare's time they knew the basic movements of history back then. Maybe they have a better grasp on those characters. Or frankly, it's like when you go to see a Marvel movie. If you just toss someone into the Avengers, they'd have trouble knowing who all these characters were. But if they know it, they think, oh, this is a perfect amount of characters. Yes, perhaps, perhaps if they knew history well. But e- e- even thinking about the analogy, I'm like, yes, this would be like watching a movie about Hitler and you have Hitler, Goebbels, Goring, and then 15 other generals that we would barely know. And that's that's how I feel about it, is that it's just too much. Especially with how unimportant some of them become, like, so quickly. I think watching this performed versus reading it or listening it is a major problem or downfall or pitfall to this play. Because at least if you're on stage, if you're watching people moving back and forth in very clear costuming would definitely help with telling people apart. Even with, you know, everyone in the audiobook having very distinct voices for these ridiculously numbered characters, it's still hard to keep up. So reading it, I was like, oh, God, oh, God. But at least if it was a play with costuming, you'd have clear visual um, cues, I I guess. It would still be a problem, though, in terms of you don't know which of these miniature scenes. And some of these, like, little moments are really two, three lines. You won't know which of these are the important ones to the overall plot. Uh, I think that's where it really struggles, is that you you don't know what's a minor side thing and what's going to be the major aspect. Um, And I think that's where it really fails. I suppose it would get better on repeat viewings. Maybe now that you know what the big thing in it is, maybe the second viewing will be more impactful. Yes, that second viewing uh, 130 years later. Is it? There was a thing... (laughs) There was a thing about the spoiler paradox, that people actually like being spoiled on something because now they can actually focus on what's going on at every moment rather than trying to predict or keep track of what's happened so far. And that's why I think that maybe maybe it works better for those who know about the war, Wars of the Roses and knows a little bit enough to know who were the major players there on stage and who were just filler. But suffice it to say, audience, we're not going to bog you down with all these characters. We'll bring them up as they are necessary. And right now, Suffolk is necessary because when he was... Because Henry VI, he's been in England, but actually it was Suffolk who was in France conducting the marriage ceremony for him. And so we have this lovely bit of dramatic irony where Suffolk says, 
I had in charge at my depart for France as procurator to your excellence to marry Princess Margaret for your grace. So in the famous ancient city tours, in presence of the kings of France and Sicily, the dukes of Orleans, Calabria, Bretagne, and Alençon, seven earls, twelve barons, and twenty reverend bishops, I had performed my task and was espoused and humbly now upon bended knee in sight of England and her lordly peers, deliver up my title in the queen to your most gracious hand. So on a very literal level, he's saying, I did the marriage ceremony for you in front of lots of witnesses, lots of elevated witnesses. But also, given we know that Suffolk and Margaret in this play are having an affair, it's essentially that metaphor of being cucked. It's that everyone knows about it. Everyone knows I'm with your wife, except for you. You don't know. (laughs) Savage. Is cuckolding a thing that's just a, a constant thing with Shakespeare and and actually just any dramatic pre- play, I guess? Is it, uh, yes, it's it's about betrayal and uh, a, a lack of control, which is, you know, emasculating in that concept of who people are at the time. It is certainly the idea that if you're a good man, you can surely keep your woman in line. So if you're being cucked, that's shameful. I'd say that that's meant to sort of be a a slight against King Henry or something like that. Yeah, very much so. So as mentioned before, in order to get Queen Margaret, he did not accept a dowry. He didn't get anything from this. And in fact, he delivered up the Duchy of Anjou and the County of Maine to the King of France, King Charles. And this is the start, the almost inciting incident of the play, where everyone in the court seems to think this is a terrible idea. They view this as the first step to losing their rightful rule of France. Do we feel that this is the main part of the plot, Greg? That's one of the weird things, is they act like it's going to be the the big deal but the big deal is actually about who can be king they don't actually care that they were they cared more about it shows that henry's weak rather than worrying about their loss of lands i mean that's something that it is it's not necessarily the fact that they've lost france is that this shows that we have a guy called henry who doesn't care about having lands and he's too weak and someone needs to take control that is because the no no point later on in the play do they talk about and this is how we're going to gain France back once we're in control. No one cares about that. It seems to be a an easy excuse rather than something anyone truly cares about. And Duke Humphrey, who until now has been the well, he is the Lord Protector of England, which essentially means he's the regent of England, which given the fact that King Henry VI is now a grown man, people start questioning whether he should still have this job as Lord Protector. But Duke Humphrey is so shocked by the fact that they've given up two town, two duchies and counties in France that he drops the letter that's explaining it. And he is the first to start talking about how awful it is that we've lost so many things in France. And then we have Warwick and then we have all these other characters talking about how much they they feel they've lost because of this. 
Uh, but now we have a secondary plot point where the Cardinal Beaufort starts talking about, tries to turn the rest of them against Humphrey, trying to say that, oh, Humphrey is too much of a ambitious man. And I, as someone who did not know the history so well, uh, I thought, oh, Duke Humphrey is going to be a villain in this. But no, no, he's the be- he's one of the most moral characters in the play. <laughs> so Isn't free. he practically the only moral character in this play? I'd say Henry VI is also a I was bit going moral. To say, what, what do you have against Henry VI? Okay, if you put it that way. <laughs> the only character with some level of effectiveness. Yes, Henry VI yeah. might be quite weak, but he, he appears to be doing it. Uh, and in fact, th- there's part of me that was trying to comprehend this as to why Shakespeare portrays Henry the Sixth as such a weak character. But I think it's about the fact that, oh, don't you understand? Our country used to have someone who was quite moral and upstanding, and the War of the Roses occurred because of all these manipulative, horrible people that got in the way of our upstanding king. I mean, it's one of those, I think it was in the introduction of this one, they were talking about how even propagandistic uh, people, even propaganda history writers, at a certain point they have to accept that the family they are writing on behalf of, some of their members just do nothing. There was nothing good you can really say. Henry VI had no achievements, even a liar couldn't make them up. But you needed to say something good about him. Okay, so he wasn't a good king, but he was a saint. That's what you can say good about him. I am, um, this might just be, you know, a very naive point of view, but he doesn't seem particularly weak to me. Um, He just seemed a bit tragic and, like, too kind. Like, he wants, so I guess that's the whole, you know, he's a saint as opposed to a king. And sainthood is not becoming of king kinghood, because um, yeah, no, I'm sh- I'm sure like Henry the Sixth Part Two is meant to basically be the old penultimate tragedy of a of a weak king. But for me, it was it just felt more like a the tragedy of a man who is forced to be king. It's entirely possible that uh, this is. <laughs> the poisoning from the the Rose King, the Ro- Requiem of the Rose King. Um, but yeah, no, he's just, for me, this whole play just feels tired and sad and angry. I, I think there there is, yeah, that is a fair perspective that he's not so much weak, but he's weak against the machinations of those around him. Like, he doesn't know how to handle the politics of the day. Yeah, he is not a political man. Um, Gloucester seems like, you know, the penultimate uh, good uncle, you know, like the Uncle Ben of Shakespearean tragedy, where unfailing moral compass. And to me, he doesn't seem angry, or disappointed with Henry for going, oh, yeah, I won't take a dowry. I'll just take the queen. The French can have this. And it's like, dude, oh, sweetie, darling, baby, my boy. I, I saw it you as more of a... You are not setting your... 
You are yeah. not setting yourself up for success. <laughs> I love you, but you're not setting yourself up for success. Like it's not, it's coming from a genuine place of concern rather than patriotic anger. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I very much felt like it was a very, um, yeah, he's older, so he feels like Henry should be listening to him more, and he feels disappointed that Henry has not taken his advice. But he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't have plans to destroy, or at least at this point, the plans to destroy Henry like some of the others are already beginning to have plans for. I feel like this is where like costuming can be a lot of fun to play with because if there's like a really obvious um prop that creates a that creates the illusion of office so if there's a giant necklace that has like swords on it or whatever because he is the protector of the realm and regent and has authority so while he's wearing that he's speaking on behalf of politics well once he takes them off he can be an uncle talking to his nephew going, Hey, you, you done fucked up. Like, I love you. And this is coming from a place of, of like concern. You fucked up. And then he wears the, the, the giant chain of office and says, you done fucked up. And like, but with a different tone, that kind of shit. I just feel like this, this play is very much a play and you have to really use your imagination to make, and visualize it how you would want to direct it to make it really worth your time. I need a lot of mnemonic exercises to make all the characters add up. And we're talking about <laughs> how, how Duke Humphrey, uh, Gloucester, just, just for any of the audience, Shakespeare does this thing, which they, everyone did at the time, where sometimes it'll give someone a name, other times it'll refer to them by the place they are ruler of. So Duke Humphrey is Gloucester, Duke Humphrey of Gloucester. That is the man which is, I think, made more complicated when in Richard III, isn't it Richard III starts off as being Gloucester? To be honest, I'm doing my absolute best to just look at this play in its entirety on its own, because if I try to connect it to other Shakespearean plays, I will get lost so fast. I'm already getting semi-lost with all these names. Oh, oh yeah, just, it's I, insane. I'm just going, Glass. Gloucester, Gloucester uh, is the uncle. He's the good boy, and we love him. Uh, and Warwick is the clever boy, and I'm not sure if we love him. And so, at the end of this scene, we have York setting up his stream of the narrative, where he is saying, "No, I am the proper king. I am the king of this nation." He says, uh, "The peers agreed, and Henry was well pleased to change two dukedoms for a duke's fair daughter. I cannot blame them all. What is to them? Tis thine." they give away and not their own. So he's saying, of course, they're willing to give away France so easily. It's my stuff they're giving away. So he, he is coming at this from, I th the, the comments on mine were saying that this really shows the distinction between York and his son, Richard III. Richard III, he cares about power. He's going to have power. He's Machiavellian. He has no sense of legitimate authority. He just wants power. Whereas York, he's saying, no, no, my bloodline means I deserve this. I... I have a re this is he has a moral sense that he is owed this, unlike his son. And so I, if I know that your your head is overflowing with um, yes, multiple places. So I'll, I'll direct this to Greg. 
we, we'll get to that in, what is it, three or four plays time, but I disagree with how you've um, portrayed Richard III there. I think part of his bitterness came from his knowledge that he was the true king. Um, but yes, and I agree with you how you've described York, though, that, that York very much believes that the, the tragedy comes from the fact that he is not recognised as king like he should be. And that all these problems would go away with this simple move of people recognising his kinghood. And moving back to the one moral character, Humphrey, we have him being so moral that he manages to resist his Lady Macbeth. The Duchess Eleanor comes whispering in his ear to say, uh, why droops my lord like over-ripened corn, hanging the head at Sedda's plenteous load? Why doth the great Duke Humphrey knit his brows as frowning at the favours of the world? Why are thine eyes fixed to the sullen earth, gazing on that which seems to dim thy sight? What seest thou there, King Henry's diadem, enchased with all the honours of the world? If so, gaze on and grovel on thy face until thy head be circled with the same. So this is definitely... A dry run for Lady Macbeth. I think it's impossible to read this without thinking, oh, this is later on Shakespeare's going to write Lady Macbeth. She is telling her husband, go on, have ambition, take the crown. It's not yours, but go on, take it. Yeah, Yeah. it actually, like, annoys... uh, I'm annoyed at myself in this because Eleanor is one of my favourite characters in this, and if I was editing it, I would remove her completely. Ooh! Um, I, I, I love her as a character. I love her as a plot. But this is one of the many times where if you remove this part of the story, you're not actually removing too much from the main story. I mean, we talk about... And then this, is... this whole, like, plot line resolves itself really quickly. I... Okay, I agree on that point in that it resolves itself very quickly. But I think it's a very important step to basically cutting Glouc- Gloucester's knees from under him. Yeah, yeah. Eleanor is his first arrow. The, yeah, it is used in that purpose, but I think you could have done three or four lines of something else to serve the exact same purpose. I think, uh-huh. if, we, I think if we wanted to be a bit like um, more original about it, um, it could have been a son. Um, Oh, no, no, I, 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 mean, love, I love her. I love how they do her story. I, I love everything about it, and it's, I guess, why I also love Lady Macbeth. But it, in terms of this play, it, it, it's another point where, you know, you, you, you start in it and you expect this to be something resolved in Act 4. I mean, there was... I mean, we're talk, you're talking about how necessary this is to the plot, but yeah. the fact that you view this as being one of your favourite parts of the play does sort of push against the idea that things need to be necessary to the plot. I mean, that, I was I was listening to the Just King Things podcast, and they were talking about The Stand, the Stephen King novel, The Stand, and how there are two versions of that novel. The first version, this was when Stephen King was not was only moderately successful, and so his editors could tell him to cut stuff out. And so he submitted to them a 1,200-page novel and they said, can you remove 400 pages? And he said, okay. And he removed 400 pages. And this was all, and no one noticed. This was all stuff that didn't contribute to the major plot. 
This was all stuff that he removed. But then when it became more popular, he released the full 1,200-page version of that novel, and that put in all this unnecessary plot stuff. But the, yeah. the hosts of Just King things are pointing out that if you ask people what they remember about this novel, what do they remember? It's all stuff that's in the expanded version. It's all stuff that was so unnecessary that it could just be removed. And yet this is the part that people remember about it. And people like that novel, frankly. So I'd say that this idea that, oh, does this give push into the main plot of the story? If you remember it, I think that's all it needs to do. If you like it, that's all it needs to do, frankly. I, I disagree. I, I say that the the reason it should be removed is, yes, it should be its own story. And fortunately, it was later on. Um, I, I, I feel like because it's in there, it makes the main plot worse. That by removing it, he Shakespeare might have spent more time on the the main story and and produce something better for it. It's like if you if all the side stories are better than the main story, the overall story kind of less good. There was that quote and, by and I would I would say the same argument can be made there with the stand is that yeah yeah all the people say the stand is good and remember all the parts that were cut. That means that what they're really saying is the main part of the stand isn't good. I remember something that Richard Linklater was saying about plots and how that, I think it was Richard Linklater, was saying that the plot is just a skeleton. And on that skeleton, I put all the things I actually want to talk about. I think there was was a quote by Friedrich Nietzsche or someone else saying, the essence of decadence is that the book is forgotten in favour of the page and the page is forgotten in favour of the paragraph and the paragraph in favour of the sentence and the sentence in favour of the word. And I suppose that is our difference, Greg. I am decadent. I prefer the word to the book. (laughs) I I prefer the word to serve the book rather than the other way around. I am interested. Okay, if I'm going to... I like the paragraphs. Um, if if we're going to carry on with this uh, thing, if the skeleton, if the skeleton is the plot and the meat and the arteries and the veins are the paragraphs and the words, I like the twinkle in the eye. I like the the subtle flex in the muscle. I like the oh yeah the the way the fingers curl and. You you like Eleanor's Ten Commandments that her oh. nails she wants to scratch the Queen's face off. Yes, with. that's so good. Um I think we can all agree that what this play needs more of is cat fights. Oh, man, that, that uh, I, just, so I disagree amazing. on that. <laughs> and I think we can thank we talk about if you know history then you'll know this. I mean Shakespeare did make some things up. But apparently Eleanor had already been disgraced four years before Margaret got there. So this Shakespeare thought, we have, I have a powerful woman here. She needs another woman to attack. It's like in action films. If there's, a, if there's the action girl, she can't fight one of the men. No, no, no. We need another woman for her to fight. It hurts me how true that is. I mean, yes, I, I, I think that's the problem for me is that if you'd taken all the good parts of Henry the Sixth, Part Two, and you went and did something else with them, like Shakespeare basically did, then we don't need Henry the Sixth, Part Two. 
we just st- simply don't need it. It's it's a play that could be forgotten and no one would be sad. Well, I kind of disagree. It's quite a nice to see where things started. But, but that's think... what I'm, I'm I'm saying. No one would want to see this play. It's nice as uh, the same way you don't mind getting to read an early draft of a great book. But it doesn't mean that you actually need that early draft for any other reason than academic interest. Aww. I th- it's not I don't think it's academic interest. I think it's um uh what's the word? It's nostalgic interest. That might just be because um this is coming personally just from a very, you know, m- me moment in my own history. Um especially when I was writing a lot of fan fiction as a child and like I occasionally still get um notifications on my emails going you know, someone liked this and I'm just going, ew, why did you like it? I wrote it when I was 14. And then like, I read it out of morbid curiosity. And there is, there will, I will still find a few passages going, oh damn, I wrote that at 14. That's not fucking bad at all. And, um, isn't that when we start a Patreon, problem? if we get to a certain level, we will release Sophie's fan fiction. <laughs> oh no. Oh no! But yeah, no. <laughs> no but isn't promises. that a problem that those same people didn't get introduced to your work by something more recent and better? Like, no one gets introduced to Shakespeare via King Henry the Sixth Part Two. Okay, if you yeah, that's not wrong. If they were introduced me, by this, then it's great <laughs> that all these great things are in it. If this was how you were introduced to Shakespeare, it's wonderful that these things are in it. But because this isn't how we're introduced to Shakespeare, is it a worthwhile play in any way other than as part of seeing how he became Shakespeare? I mean, I, let's, put it, let's frame this in a different way. I'd say that there are certain plays people do think are good Shakespeare, which I think this could very well replace. Like, for instance, Taming of the Shrew and Julius Caesar. Get rid of those, put this in its place. This is a far better play than either of those. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I, I quite like both of those plays, especially Julius Caesar. Teaming um, of the Shrew, I can definitely live without, mostly just yeah. because it feels so incomplete. Yeah, like, I, I think Taming of the Shrew is another example of this is a draft and is only benef- really a benefit as a draft. Yeah, um, no, that that I definitely agree with. But um, if, I think... If this was written by some other unknown playwright, it is only this play, you would say this is a bad play with some good scenes in it. I would okay. I wouldn't call it a bad play. I would call it a sad and tired play. Oh, tired is a good word for it. Yes, <laughs> it's it has a lot of downs. It doesn't have enough ups to like you know just weigh it weigh it down. And I guess that's the kind of the point of a tragedy. But like, it's not like a suspenseful grip your heart, please be okay kind of tragedy. It's a hubris to have tragedy. Huh? Don't you need hubris to have tragedy? Uh, yeah, I guess that's why it's no, you don't. Tragedy is, is tragedy is a character. It's sorry. Tragedy is a protagonist in a situation where they are doomed to fail. Um, so like, Othello versus Hamlet. Um, Othello, like, he rushes into things, and that's why he's so easily tricked. He's a passionate man that just says, fuck you, I'm going to do what I do, and 
That's his downfall. Well, Hamlet is a man who thinks and thinks and worries and thinks because he wants to do the right thing, not just the passionate thing. But, and that's why he fails in Hamlet. But if you put Othello in Hamlet's situation and he's he's told, hey, uh, your dad got killed by this guy. You should revenge him. Oh, it's a correction. I was Othello, your dad, me, the ghost, was killed by your uncle. Revenge me. Othello will be like, down, I'll do it, stab, end of story. While Hamlet, um, faced with Iago, going, hey, uh, your wife is totally cheating on you and you should totally stab her in the face. Uh, Hamlet will be like, we'll think about it, we'll think about it, we'll think about it some more and be like, you know what, Iago, you're a liar and stab him in the face. Like, that's the point. So in that sense... um, Henry the Hamlet will probably be standing in a corner thinking, Iago, why are you being so nice to me? Yeah, that too. Um, but yeah, Henry the Sixth is very much a play is is a perfect tragedy um tragedy in that he is a shepherd, a peace loving, kind, and frankly, let bygones be bygones kind of person in a station where that is unacceptable. So, and and that is tragic, but it's a different kind of tragedy. It's just sad and tired, Um, especially at that very iconic um, soliloquy or, you know, monologue at to himself. Like that really, that one, that one line really hit me home. And that's where this is coming from for me. Like it's a tragedy and it's a good tragedy, but it's a tired tragedy. Let him go home and nap. And tying just to get out of the way before we move on to the next act, we this has another link to Macbeth in that Duke Duchess Eleanor hires a witch, hires and not not this isn't I didn't expect magic to enter into this play, but she hires a witch and this witch summons a spirit, and this spirit answers her questions, you know, in that very sort of vague way that spirits do. But were you expecting magic to be a part of this play? Were you, Greg, were you expecting magic after this point to have any bigger role? No, I thought it'd be very similar to Macbeth in that the witch was playing the role of a little bit of prophecy, just to point you in some sort of direction, but also as Again, the whole thing with Eleanor just very much seems to be an overwinded excuse. Like it, 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 it. She clearly played not much role, so I didn't expect the witchcraft to play that much role. As soon as she was dealt with, I knew that would be the end. We wouldn't hear any more. Uh, I um, yeah. When the witch arrived, oh, where is the witch? Well, uh, I really, I really enjoyed that scene. It was gorgeous. Um, uh, because it, it very much felt like you know, double bubble, boil and trouble, light. <laughs> it was very much. Hey, uh, let me see how much I can get away with. Because apparently, you know, we're at the time when it was first released, people were going, "Oh shit, this is real. We're gonna get." Dead tonight. 
Pretty plot well chosen to build upon. Now pray, my lord, let's see the devil's root. What have we here? That's just the dude going, oh, okay. So this is what it says. Hmm, okay. It's fine. It's fine. This is fine. And I'm just going, Dukey, Gloucester, boy, are you are you being deliberately blind or is the straightness of your compass leading you astray? Oh, there it is. Patience, good lady, wizards know their times. Deep night, dark night, the silence of the night, the time of night when Troy was set on fire, the time when screech owls cry and band dogs howl and spirits walk and ghosts break up their graves. That's a great line, break up their graves like goddamn zombies coming out. That time best fits the work we have in hand. Madam, sit you, and fear not, whom we raise, we will make fast within a hallowed verge. I don't know what a hallowed verge is. Uh, what I like about this scene is that it's immediately followed by your coming in and reading it and going, oh, what, so they told her that Gloucester will become king. What a joke. I think it's more that he's, he's sort of pointing out that you know, these are those very vague, grammatically vague ones where it could mean anything. So the duke yet lives that Henry shall depose. Now, that, that could either mean there is a duke who shall depose Henry or there is a duke who Henry, Henry will depose that duke. He's pointing out, well, this spirit gave him no information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is literally like, oh, my goodness, people still fall for psychics. <laughs> that's, that's what I got from this this monologue is that York is like I can't believe people are taking this seriously like what's wrong with it like, oh, well to the rest tell me <laughs> what fate awaits the Duke of Suffolk by water shall he die and take his end what shall the tide to the Duke of Somerset let him shun castles safer shall he be upon the sandy plains than where castles mounted stand Ah, come, come, my lords, these oracles are hardly attained and hardly understood. The king is now in progress towards St. Albans, with him the husband of this lovely lady. Thither go these news, as fast as horse can carry them, as sorry breakfast for my lord protector. And like, okay, for me, I was like, well, clearly he's going to drown. Clearly he's going to drown. Maybe you should not let him near a body of water. The Duke of Suffolk go nowhere near water, and he will be safe forever. And, uh, and this like, is also a setup for, a, for, depending on your point of view, a, a brilliant or an awful pun. He it's shall dumb. die. Yes, it's dumb. It's dumb as um, you will die by a born a man. A, oh yes, not of man. Yeah, like, I should also terrible. point out that this is not the the prophecy that Duke the Duke of Suffolk knows when he's on that boat. An entirely separate prophecy told him he was going to die by water. Yeah. But anyway, and and Somerset, let him shun castles. Uh, in which case, maybe there's going to be a siege. Maybe there's going to be a war. Um, I do agree with um, Greg on this, on this particular scene about his gripe on um, this being solved too quickly. Like, on the one hand, yeah, maybe you shouldn't ta- be taking um, psychics seriously. But also, I wish there had been a little bit more paranoia about, you know, is there going to be a war? Should I be shunning castles because we're about to be sieged? I didn't mind that um, York didn't believe it. I just minded that this never really came up again. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was that the little bit of joking 
Um, it's like, oh yeah, if you think about that, when you leave the theatre and you then look at how they died, oh, you might be able to find a connection. Yeah, um, but it's Act 1, Scene 4. They should be, um, you know, a little bit more worried about it, especially because if if they find Henry so weak and self-faltering and a spineless king, maybe there will be a war and maybe it will be brought all the way to his doorstep and that's why you should shun castles. Um, so, yeah, I just wish there had been a little bit more weight to this scene and also just to Eleanor in general, as you say, because she is a delightful It had so character. little to do with the rest. Yeah. Um, and if, you, if you'd made her a major player in the entire story, I think it would have benefited. Um, but, you know, what do I know? Shakespeare's been around hundreds of years and I'll be forgotten in about <laughs> Well, at this point, he'd only been around for like maybe three decades, if that, so... Yeah, but, but yeah, this is my theory, is that if this play was anyone else's and they didn't write anything else, it would possibly be remembered for a couple of good scenes. I think he was 28 um, when he wrote this. So, Sophie, does that make you feel shit? No. I mean, he ha- he doesn't have to deal with our... He, has to deal- he had to deal with his own shit and we had to deal with ours. Like... <laughs> Yes, you tell yourself that, Sophie. Yeah, I'm going to tell myself that. wrote the play by being part of a theatre company. There's lots of people who are parts of theatre companies in their 20s and therefore wrote plays. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to stick with my my guns on this one. (laughs) Act two. Henry and friends are going out hunting and a man comes by to claim that he has been blessed by the Lord. He was blind, but now he can see. And Greg, I'm sure you're going to say this is unnecessary. So should we skip over it? I, 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 part of me goes, it's unnecessary. And part of me says, it would have been great if this was like partway through Act like four or something. Like, it, it makes for great comic relief, but we don't need comic relief this early on. Certainly this guy is... They destroy this miracle with facts and logic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in that... Back to Humphrey. Humphrey is confronted by his wife's witchcraft. They come up and say, your wife has been doing awful things... And Eleanor is banished, and Humphrey is no longer protector of the realm. And Margaret, Margaret is absolutely delighted that Humphrey is gone. That bear, ah, why now is Henry king and Margaret queen, and Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, scarce himself that bears so shrewd a mane? Two pulls at once, his lady banished, and a limb lopped off. She is, I, I think, between Queen Margaret. And so now that I think about it, I mean, Lady Macbeth speaks evil in a very different way than Queen Margaret speaks evil. Queen Margaret seems more like a sadist, whereas Lady Macbeth is just ambitious. She doesn't seem to take pleasure in being evil. She's just ambitious. I didn't actually get Margaret to be too evil anyway. Margaret yes, just... I remember that Charlotte Lennox, who was an author that Jane Austen really liked, Charlotte Lennox was talking about... Shakespeare slanders Queen Margaret. She does the most reasonable things in this play, and yet he portrays her as an absolute monster. 
Yeah. I mean, if you've been married off as queen, wouldn't you want your king to actually be king? Like, mm. is that such a bad thing? It's not like she's the one who um, got Lady Gloucester into witchcraft and then made sure she got caught out. Like, all she did was say, oh, yeah, that's good. Uh, I, I didn't plan any of this, but this is exactly what I would want to happen. Although going by the way that those old kinds of histories work, the fact that her lover, Suffolk, had a part in it would imply by transitive properties that she was the one who secretly put the idea in his head. We don't need to say that she put the idea in his head. That's taken as bread. Uh, I, I, I have more time for the Queen than I do for, say, Suffolk or York. And really, the only so Eleanor, she's led in shame through the streets, and she she's she cannot conceive that she's done something wrong. She has literally used the witch to raise a devil up, but she thinks, no, I'm the wronged one here, and, and she got off fairly well. She, other people are getting executed for helping her. She's just being banished. Uh, things I didn't know, and I haven't been able to find very well. What would it have been like on the Isle of Man? Like, was this banishment really that bad? I think like, Isle we know of Man there was, was quite windy. There, and Stanley was known as the King of Man. Like, it, it doesn't sound bad other than you're no longer part of the inner, inner, inner circle. It's, I mean, at the time, it's one of those things where, I mean, yes, in these plays, yes, oh, thank God I'm away from the court, all the backstabbing. But this. At a time like this, if you're away from the really one source of culture in the entire country, that's going to really hurt you. Yeah, it's a, it sounds like generally this wasn't an overkill of a punishment, though, is I guess what I'm saying. Is that if, if you take her move as being something akin to mild treason, um, I think well, it's, it doesn't is- sound like bad punishment. I think also we it might be like a f- physically symbolic um place as well because it's kind of between you know it's in the smack bit of middle of between the British Isles um specifically fucking Wales and Ireland and Scotland and it's just right in the middle of all of those um principalities or kingdoms depending on like which area you're talking to so it's almost like purgatory you're not anywhere you're in the isle of man you're in the middle between these great powers and you can't just anyone who currently lives in the isle of man we do mean that you are purgatory (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure it's a lovely place it looks really windy to me but also i'm from wellington i know windy it's actually quite lovely on a really hot day so yeah, I can sort of see why um, it's a really good place to um, banish people because once you're there, getting back out it would be an absolute task. Yeah, especially if, you know, all the Navy guys have been told you're not allowed to leave. You're having to bribe a merchant sailor to get back out. And you'd have to bribe them very good. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting that, you know, for, for, for what could have been called some a serious crime, 
It, it, it seemed like a fair punishment to me. And in terms of the entire plot, the only thing this will do is that it will only give Humphrey's enemies more ammo against him. I think they will even start saying that, oh no, he was the one who put her up to it, when actually it was she who was putting him up to things he didn't accept. But moving on, the only other important thing that happens in this act is that York convinces Salisbury and Warwick that he actually does have the proper family line. Personally, it's enough to make me go, oh God, just, I don't care. You don't care, but isn't that the whole point of the War of the Roses? (laughs) <laughs> it is, that is the point. It's a, But it's a bad point. It's a terrible point. Kingship, I'm assuming, is hard. If you're a good king, anyway. If you're a bad king, I'm sure you're going to have a time of your life. But as a good king, you're going to have shit time, as Henry clearly is. I just think it's the whole thing is quite hilarious that um, you're, you're allowed to try and overthrow the kingdom as long as you can make a good excuse for why you should be king. In terms mm. of family line, not in terms of your ability to lead, simply in terms of family line. If you if you can make a good genetic claim, then go ahead, try to attack the king. You're not doing anything too wrong. <laughs> Divine right yeah. of kings, baby. The divinity makes me right to rule. Mm. Now, I remember, someone that's... was saying that the fundamental question of Shakespeare's history plays is the division between legitimate authority and legitimate ability. And that it is, the thing often happens when the person with legitimate authority lacks any and all ability. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a nice summary of the place, yeah. Act three. Humphrey is imprisoned on trumped up charges. And the charges are so trumped up that even the people who are imprisoning him know they don't have anything on him. So at, at, so they, they've been accusing him of various things and saying, you know, you did this. And he's saying, no, actually, I did this. To which at the very end, Suffolk said, my lord, these faults are easy. Quickly answer it. But mightier crimes are laid unto your charge, whereof you cannot easily purge yourself. I do arrest you in his highness's name. He doesn't name any of these other things. Oh, yes, yes, I know that you've told me that you didn't do any of this stuff. Uh, but we have other things against you. We're not going to tell you, but we have the other things. Now, this is sort of, I mean, nowadays, imprisoning someone without telling them what they've done as a crime is the symbol of uh, uh, law enforcement overreach. Uh, it is the symbol of Kafkaesque legal system. Uh, and then at, then at the end, Cardinal Beaufort, you know, they've all agreed that Humphrey should die, but Cardinal Beaufort says that he should die is worthy policy, but yet we want the colour for his death. It is meet he be condemned by course of law. So he's saying, yes, we know he should die, but we need to find a reason why legally we can put him to death, to which Suffolk just says, but in my mind that were no policy, the king will labour still to save his life, the commons will happily rise and save his life, and yet we have a trivial argument, more than mistrust that shows him worthy death. So even Suffolk admits, we don't have any argument, legal argument against him. So these are, they are really emphasizing that they have nothing on Humphrey, that Humphrey is a good man. But he is in the way, and so we must get rid of the moral compass. I mean, I guess, 
I guess this is pretty much the point of the play, you know, um, infighting just, you know, destroys the castle. And the fact that they perceive Henry to be so weak and the only thing propping up, propping him up is, is Gloucester. So they're like, all right, let's get rid of Gloucester and the kingship is ours. And it's just like, well, are you sure? <laughs> what kind of kingship will, will remain after you have gained it? Queen Margaret is on the throne. Are you going to get rid of her too? And after to getting rid of her, do you get rid of each other? Like how deep does this rabbit hole go? How deep do you have to dig before you realize you're digging into your own foundation and you're removing the cornerstone of your own castle? And um, in that sense, I'm actually quite... Um, interested in why Henry the Sixth Part Two was written. Because it feels a little bit like Star Wars in that sense. You know, um everything horrible has already happened and now we're just dealing with Luke and Leia and Darth Vader. Like Anakin becoming Darth Vader can come later. When we're, we're not we know that's kind of happened already. We don't, we're not really interested in that. We are interested in Henry VI and how such a nice man was just forced to destroy himself, basically, or forced to allow people to destroy him. Um, that was a little, that, that went a little to the left, but whatever. Um, yeah, irony, irony. Humphrey being put away and just, the kingship being ruined as a result, irony. And the king is frankly heartbroken by this. This is the most emotion he has shown. He has, he, he managed, when he lost his French lands, he was stoic about that. He said, oh, well, what God wishes. But no, Humphrey's gone. He is moaning like his own father has died. The most disappointing thing about this is, as Sophie said, that Gloucester is kind of an Uncle Ben character, and yet this doesn't make Henry into a superhero. At, I, I'd say that at the end he becomes increasingly more like he's putting his foot down. <laughs> but he does, he does send Suffolk off. He does banish Suffolk, so he, he does... This, I mean, as an Uncle Ben character, he met, find his... Loss makes King Henry man up, quite frankly. Does he man up enough? Probably not, but he does. Duh, uh, does he man up? I think it's... It feels more like um, an action of reckless abandon, because... Or, you know, a cornered rat um, bites hardest when, um, you know, that kind of shit. Because... Henry was maybe okay. Maybe Henry was a bit too comfortable um, with Gloucester around because, you know, he was his support. So having lost him, maybe he's gotten a little unhinged, a little unbalanced. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a it's a moment of manning up. It's a moment of I'm losing my patience. I'm done. Before I had the patience because I had Gloucester. Um, and now I don't. I don't care. I don't care anymore. I'm done. 
it's yeah that's that's where my impression of a tired tragedy comes into play but fundamentally humphrey has to die according to suffolk and the cardinal and they say we can't wait for the law we'll just have some we'll hire some assassins to kill him margaret she gets some of the best lines in this and she give responding to humphrey's death she manages to say oh how sad it is while also emphasizing how not sad she is why it's, do you rate Yes. Sorry, I'm just going to say Margaret is goddamn savage about this. So mean. So she's talking. Continue. So this is just after King Henry has tried. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I say King Henry mans up, but he's sort of um, he's sort of yelling at Suffolk about these things. But then Queen Margaret says, uh, although the Duke was enemy to him, yet he most Christian like laments his death. And for myself, foe as he was to me, might liquid tears or heart-offending groans or blood-consuming sighs record his life, I would be blind with weeping, sick with groan. So she's she's saying that, look, she's saying might liquid tears. She says, I would be blind with weeping, emphasizing that, oh, look, I'm not crying. I don't cry. I would cry if they could bring him back to life. But because it won't bring him back to life, crying's useless. Therefore, I'm not. When obviously she just doesn't care. She's, she's just really emphasizing, she's using the potentiality of her crying, but really just emphasizing that she is not crying over his death. No, I, I actually prefer the next lines where she gets pissed off at the king for um, crying over Gloucester instead of enjoying her company. Yeah, no, it's so long as well. And she's so mean about it. Like, um, cause how fears my gracious lord and Suffolk, who fucking murdered the good Uncle Ben, is like, comfort my sovereign, gracious Henry, comfort. And Henry's like, no, fuck you, fuck you guys. You were so mean to him. And now he's gone and you're doing crocodile tears. Go, fuck off. I don't care about you anymore. Go away. And, and yeah. Queen Margaret's like, oh, no, Henry, that's not true. He's crying. I'm crying. We're all crying. We, we, we didn't like him much, but that doesn't mean we didn't like him. And Henry's like, Gloucester, daddy. And then Queen Margaret's like, oh, but for, be for, oh, shit, be woe for me, more wretched than he is. What? Dost thou turn away, hide thy face? I am no loathsome leper. Look on me. What? Art thou like the adder, waxen diff? Be poisonous too and kill thy forlorn queen. Is all thy comfort shut in Gloucester's tomb? Why then, Dame Margaret, was never thy joy. Erect his statue and worship it and make my image but an alehouse sign. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, lady. Like, let let him grieve his uncle. <laughs> just why... Let him turn away from you for just a second. Like, you're not... How, you've only been here two weeks. How long actually has she been here? Like, time is so myopic in Shakespearean plays. Like, if this was just... If this was her experience of being ignored and, like, you know, being half-heartedly loved um, as opposed... And all of Henry's affection and adoration and respect had gone to Gloucester, then, yeah... I think she can be a little bit like snappy about it, but like, come on. Like, because thy flinty heart more hard than they might in thy palace perish, Margaret, as far as I could ken thy chalky cliffs, when from thy shore the tempest beat us back. I stood upon the hatches in the storm, and when the dusky sky began to rob my earnest gaping sight of thy land's view, I took a costly jewel from my neck. I heart it was 
bound in with diamonds and threw it towards thy land. The sea received it, and so I wished thy body might my heart, and even with this I lost fear England's view, and bid mine eyes be packing with my heart, and called them blind and dusky spectacles for losing ken of Albion's wished coats. And it's like, she's, and then like, she also somewhere in there is like, I wish I'd fucking drowned before I got here. And it's just like, Margaret, calm, calm your tits. Chill the fuck out. You, you literally conspired to kill this uncle, maybe. You dost protest too much. Oh, there's the line. Hey! I, I would say that perhaps there is a an element of, you know, when when there is a radical break in empathy, when some when you see someone crying and you really just don't feel that, uh, you you imagine you're saying, Why the fuck are you crying? I'm not crying, I don't care. Why do you care so, so much? And that there is this the the irritation that grows into anger about that. Yeah, and, and also, also maybe the fact that she realizes that oh, I'm married to this absolute pussy. I am. I he is so unsuited for me. And I think also her anger is stemming from the fact that he is not a pussy for her. He he's not acting on her behalf in any way. While we're on that passage, though, because. There, there are a few quotes I want to point out as we come along to that passage. There's this great little quote here that um, the common people, like an angry hive of bees um, that want their leader, run around and care not who stings, who they sting. But, um, the commons, like an angry hive of bees that want their leader, scatter up and down and care not who they sting in his revenge. I, I really like that. that fault but it is it's still a force of woe for him that is stemming from her just existing in england so he obviously he can't love her or at least as much as he wants to or as much as as much as he believes he should because she's a source of conflict and she's not helping him by conspiring to imprison and kill his uncle either so She's stuck here, and she's angry, and she has every right to be, but also fuck off, Margaret. And in the end, uh, via a trial by combat, and also seemingly some proto-forensic science, forensic um, crime science, where Warwick goes, ah, by these clues I can tell that this was a violent death. Uh, it, it, and who could be here to see the death unless it was someone who knew there was a death? And this is the Jacques moment. I can imagine this being played by Poirot at some point. Uh, so, but, you know, Suffolk's found and King Henry says, and therefore by his majesty I swear, whose hard unworthy deputy I am, he shall not breathe infection in this air for three days longer on the pain of death. And so he banishes Suffolk. So, he, so I will say that I think there is a definite breaking point here where... King Henry, at least at some moments, he is putting his foot down. I mean, and then we follow into the scene where Henry goes off at the Queen for protecting Suffolk or something like that. Uh, and, and then she goes off at him and it all becomes very much a soap opera for a very short period of time. 
Yeah, so ungentle queen, to call him gentle Suffolk. No more, I say, if thou dost plead for him, thou wilt but add increase unto my wrath. Had I but said, I would have kept my word, but when I swear, it is irrevocable. So, again, he's just saying, stop talking at this point. He's like, I'm done. I'm done. This is done. You're done. I'm done. My foot is down. I do not care. We have uh, Margaret and Suffolk as they're parting, uh, their language together. I mean, we've uh, we'd read uh, some other stuff, Shakespeare's under love poetry and that. I find that here we do get a sense that they genuinely have something, a deeper love between them than mere lust, that their language does seem to be more than that they have an actual romantic relationship together. That it's not just sexual here. Yeah, possibly. I'm not sure. The Earl of Suffolk's long response to Queen Margaret going, Fie, coward woman and soft-hearted wretch, hast thou no, not spirit to curse thine enemy? Was quite interesting. Um, where he goes, you know, a plague upon them. Wherefore should I curse them? Should curses kill as doth mandrakes groan? Blah, 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 blah. Um, again, this feels a little Macbethy in just the sheer amount of like witchery and wizardry vibery going. Um, <laughs> vibery, I'm sorry for saying that word. Um, and for me, it feels a little defensive this whole part where because he calls him fire coward woman and soft hearted wretch, and she very much thinks Henry of that. So Earl of Suffolk is like, no, don't you put me in that same basket as that wimpy king? And he goes ham on the on the cursage. Um, and then like bound with mutual hatred towards their king, she goes, oh yes, I'm happy now. You may go. I will not forget you. And. Come back. Does she say come back? Or are they relatively sure that they're never going to see each other again? It, it, it definitely points out that they expect to be in communication still. Um, the Queen says, um, Away though parting to be a fretful corrosive, it is applied to a deathful wound. To France, sweet Suffolk, let me hear from thee. For wherever, wheresoever thou art in this world's globe, I'll have an iris that shall find thee out. So I do think that while they're parting, they're still expecting to be important to each other and to know what's going on. So it might be some time until they meet again, but I don't think they're expecting this to be some cutting off. Maybe they were going for a long-term plan where she'd end up being widowed and and Suffolk could come back and be her regent to their illegitimate son or something. They had a, they had something, they had something in the back. They they had plans. And so we move from the poetic justice for Suffolk. He's been punished by being banished. And now we move on to the Cardinal Beaufort, who seemingly from a literal deus ex machina, God strikes him down. I, this is, I do feel maybe this is in the history books. I assume it's in the history books. But the idea is this, oh, well, one of them got punished by the king doing something and God dealt with the other one. 
that he's struck down and he's uh, seemingly going to die of some, you know, fit, it seems. And I find that this scene, you know, act three, scene three, does get across how unsuited the king is for his current vocation, because he is the one who is, so the Cardinal of Beaufort, he's this Machiavellian politician. The man of God is a Machiavellian politician, whereas the king, who should be a politician, is acting as the priest for the cardinal when he's dying. He's saying to the priest, oh, you must uh, repent your sins, be ready for God, but the cardinal's not having any of that. So this really does give us a sense of what would happen if King Henry VI was like the second son rather than the main son, (laughs) that he'd probably have. He would have been a very good priest. Yeah. And, I mean, say what you like about this one. The cardinal says, bring me unto my trial when you will. Died he not in his bed, where should he die? Can I make men live where they will or no? Oh, torture me no more, I will confess alive again. Then show me where he is, I'll give a thousand pounds to look upon him. He hath no eyes, the dust hath blinded them. Comb down his hair. Look, look, it stands upright, like lime twigs set up to catch my winged soul. Give me some drink and bid the apothecary bring the strong poison that I brought of him. So he's rambling, he's raving over the perhaps guilty fields of killing Humphrey. But just what I, I mentioned how most critics after Shakespeare's time don't like this play. But Edward Capel, 1790, says a speech recorded by Hall of this cardinals suggested the awful scene we have here. And awful, I assume he means, you know, awe-inspiring. And this thought in particular. The scene has never been equaled on any theatre, never will be. Do you feel that? Do you feel the scene has such power in it? But no. I mean, it's it, it's a good scene, but it's nothing too special, especially not for Shakespeare. I mean, yeah, it sounds like a, the cardinal raving, possibly out of guilt. As they die, and that's it. And it's it's a good monologue by the cardinal that gets to be a good little short monologue there. Um, but yeah, Shakespeare does heaps of these. This might be one of the early examples, but it's nothing compared to some of the lines of the king in again King Lear or um, what? There was another play that I was thinking of. Uh, yeah, it's that Macbeth, again, had a couple of good little monologues like that. Um, yeah, it just it doesn't stand out as anything incredible. Uh, for me, it's not a good... It's not a... It's not a good monologue if he can't move around. Like, this man is stuck in bed and he's raving. So unless he's, like, raving against the bars, going, Bring me on to my trial when you will! Then clearly that might be a bit more interesting. But he's just meant to be tossing and turning in bed and very much quietly dying. Um, Okay, not quietly dying, but still. Um, Doing his best to just wriggle and writhe in bed. And that's not a really compelling... Uh, soliloquy or monologue or whatever i think margaret's one just before about you know oh i'm married to a sissy puss is far more compelling and interesting a monologue 
think as a scene, it works very well too. I, I like how it portrays the post-death little bit with the king and Warwick and Salisbury. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a well-written so-and-so scene. It, look, the cardinal again seems added because the cardinal was there in history. I, I, I'm sorry, I just, I can't get over the fact there are so many schemers in this play, and I don't think we need all of them. And moving back to a schemer who's, so it, during this, I've been sort of subconsciously moving all of York's things to the end, even though what he does is sort of sprinkled throughout the scene, because, I mean, perhaps this goes into your point, Greg, that the play is structured such that seemingly the most important part of it which is York leading up to the War of the Roses, it's entirely unembedded. It's entirely on parallel tracks from the rest of what's going on. So you can... So this happened earlier on where they sent York to Ireland. The character sent York to Ireland because they thought, oh, let's get him out of the way. But actually, York is saying, aha, they're going to send me to Ireland to fight the rebels. This just means they're going to give me an army and I will take this army back to them to fight them. So... While York's gone, like... I don't see why we need so many other schemers. Like, why couldn't we give more time to Suffolk instead of also having the Cardinal? Like, it's those sorts of decisions that I don't understand. And I can only put it down to certain things were expected because it was from history. Yeah, I wonder how this... So we're talking about Henry VI, Part 2. I wonder how this will feel if we read Henry VI, Part 3. Because maybe it's something like these first three acts of Henry VI Part Two. These are really just the first act of the play, of the overall two-part play. Maybe, maybe it, it will all feel better when we've read Henry VI Part Three. I guess we'll only know when we do it. Yeah, but I actually really like this as a standalone. Like, um, mostly probably because like I don't really give a shit about the War of the Roses, and the continuity of things. Um, I mean, knowing the continuity of things just makes you feel clever, and it's like, oh, yeah, I know that dude. But um, as a whole, just a cons- having, like, sprinkles of constant dread of York doing stuff in the background is a nice touch, but if all I want is just to see the moderate success and then the spiraling away of Henry, this is pretty good. Oh, he started as such a hopeful baby. And look at him now. Look at him now. Did we get him starting as a hopeful baby? He he sort of started as a hopeful baby. I mean, that's implied. That was implied. He was put on the throne as a child. And I think they do mention that. Yes, but yeah. what, what, did, what did he do in this play for you? And this is what I'm talking about, the tragedy. It's, he doesn't fall. He's always at the bottom anyway. No, he, well, he's... <laughs> I think, okay. He never act as king. When, when they get rid of Gloucester for him to finally be king, he still doesn't do anything. I'd say the fact he, lo- he loses because, yeah, he never acts as king, but he is the king and he's going to lose that. No, oh, he has the name of king. 
But like, okay, I'm just going to go all the way to the back um, to Act One, Scene One, and Henry Fourth, Suffolk, arise. Welcome, Queen Margaret. I can express no kinder sign of love than this kind kiss. O Lord, that lends me life, lend me a heart replete with thankfulness, for thou hast given me in this beauteous face a world of earthly blessings to my soul, if sympathy of love unite our thoughts. And Queen Margaret, great King of England and my gracious Lord, the mutual conference that my mind hath had by day, by night, waking and in my dreams, in courtly company or at my beads, with you, mine older lifest sovereign, I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, makes me the bolder to salute my king with bruder terms such as my wit affords and over joy of heart doth minister. And it's like, that's cute. That sounds like a very hopeful start to a hopeful political marriage. Like, hey, we just met. Let me kiss your hand. And I hope we have a good time. And Queen Margaret's like, yeah, gracious lord. I hope so too. And it start, they start out hopeful. Like, her sight did ravish, but her grace in speech, her words, he clad with wisdom, wisdom's majesty, makes me from wandering fall to weeping joys, such is the fullness of my heart's content. Lords, with one cheerful voice, welcome my love. Long live Queen Margaret, England's happiness. England's happiness. It's meant to be a hopeful start. And it's obviously, it's from right there that you notice, oh, oh shit, um, this is a problem because received deep scars in France and Normandy. Oh, have my uncle Beaufort, Beaufort, fucking English, French names. Um, yeah, so it's a really like first five minutes, 10 minutes. If there's fanfare and dancing and music before the announcement happens, like it's a good start. It's a hopeful start. Okay. And. The cracks practically show immediately, but, you know, it starts hopeful. I will stand on this hill. (laughs) And that was Act (laughs) 3. Act 4. And Suffolk is killed by an awful pun. He's been abducted by pirates. And then there is, he, he says that when I was born, my nativity, my birth astrology reading told me that I'd die by water. And now I'm going to be killed by a pirate called Walter. That makes sense. <laughs> There's a... I hate that so intensely. I cannot stress enough. It's awful. Apparently the pun worked better in Shakespeare's time, but it it is a pun. So it's it's also one of those things where it's really sort of compounding it. He is dying on water, but he just had Shakespeare had, he invented this guy called Walter. He says, oh no, he he can't just die by a pirate. He needs to die literally with, with a guy called Walter. A guy called Walter. There was a quote by Dr. Samuel Johnson from the 18th century where he says, a quibble, and a quibble is what they call a pun, a quibble, poor and barren as it is, gave Shakespeare such delight that he was content to purchase it by the sacrifice of reason, propriety, and truth. A quibble was to him the fatal Cleopatra for which he lost the world, 
and was content to lose it. I think that's a fair assessment of it, to be honest. I think Shakespeare often uses puns to the detriment of his work just because he enjoys a good pun. And I'd but say always... times he uses the pun fairly well. Don't ask like me when he, an example right now, but... Like when in Macbeth, Shakespeare realised there was a guy in the history books called Satan. And so when Macbeth is going further and further into evil, he calls this character, he calls out Satan, Satan, Satan in such a way. Some people will say about that, oh no, there was actually a guy called Satan. Therefore, there's no subtext to him yelling out Satan, Satan, Satan. But no, he is called Satan. He is That, that is a good use of puns there. Uh, he has some good ex- examples, but this is not one of them. This is just... It is not. This is as good as, like you said earlier, about the man not born of woman or whatever it is. Just let a woman stab yeah. a man. Come on. Yeah. I was not born of woman. I was like, yes, you fucking were. You were just ripped out yeah. early. It, that doesn't count. Man not born of vagina. Come on. Oh, come on. <laughs> Garbage. Were you? Were you... If you were like, you know, you sustained the last six weeks of your life in a glass jar and fed with seawater and amniotic fluid, fine. Okay, I'll take that. You're an abomination. But still, let a woman stab a king. Why the fuck not? So upset. Anyway. I'm fine. But suffice it to say, Suffolk is dead. He's been killed. We move on, and to finally, finally, to Jack Cade's introduction, the working-class revolutionary. Finally, we get to him. Now, this may just be me, but when I hear about this play, one of the only when I hear about the entire sequence of Henry the Sixth play, one of the first things I hear about is Jack Cade, working-class revolutionary. This is what I hear, and I was surprised to find that he only exists for a single act in part two. He's been mentioned once or twice before this point, but he is introduced in act four and he will die at the end of act four. Yeah, I I would have loved to play about Cade. That is a play I would have liked. And and I guess that's part of the whole Shakespeare loves his kings. He doesn't realise that he had this awesome character he could have focused on instead. (laughs) I'd say that... um... Your view of this goes quite against the views in 1774 of a man called Francis Gentleman. And that re- the real <laughs> nominative determinism in his last oh, name yeah. there, Francis Gentleman. Got he says, it. we more of this entire sequence, he says, we more cordially wish the whole of this crew suppressed than any characters or passages we have met in our author. For though Jack Cade and his associates are essential to history and might have created a real tragedy, they are miserable members to compose parts of one for representation. Yeah. So, Gentlemen don't like rebels. Certainly, and especially these... Uh, it's one of those things where in the second half of the 20th century, a lot of the things which people said, oh, that's the bad thing about Shakespeare, people now say, oh, that's the best thing about Shakespeare. People are saying, oh... Titus Andronicus is too violent. Oh, no, it's brilliantly violent. Oh, Jack Cade, he's too low class. Oh, we love that about him. 
do we feel that, given that he just seems to come out of nowhere, I mean, I can imagine it's being played by Orson Welles quite well, but uh, do, we ima- do we think that the fact that he seems to come out of this almost with no setup, there's no building up to him, he just sort of bursts onto the scene, really. Do we think that this is, uh, that the surprise adds to his appeal, or do we feel that he should have been built up a bit more? Uh, I'm okay with him not being built up. Yeah, I, no, I like that he came in as a surprise. Um, yeah, uh, th- there's part of me that goes, oh, would the play have been better if he was less involved and he was more like um, the oncoming king in Pamlet? The, you know, the coming invasion. But, I yeah, I I love Kate. This is part of the play I like. He's um, the sort of... It, it seems different. It seems like a completely different play to the rest of the play. Yes, he's one his character depends and his scenes depend on having two entirely opposite poles active, one of being utter savagery and the other of being utter burlesque comedy. Because he's the type of person who says these outrageous things like let's kill all the lawyers, let's kill anyone who can read and write. This person is like this person managed to give me a good reason why I shouldn't kill him. That's the reason enough to kill him. He's <laughs> so he it's you know the burlesque comedy of this utter you know working class dictator figure, but the fact that he goes on and actually does these things that's what makes it savage, and it works best if you have these two poles utterly active at a single time. And, and you know he hmm? it could always it's a way of pacifying the upper class almost because so far. Every single character, except Gloucester, um, has been a terrible aristocrat. And um, because, you know, Henry's too weak, Margaret's cruel, Suffolk is a wanker, Um, just everyone is infighting, trying to be as selfish as possible, aiming for the crown, and the upper class might be going, Shakespeare, are you trying to tell us something? Are you trying to create a statement with this? And I feel yes, like especially Jack- given that you know we have here, um, so we have Cade. He's talking about he he's boasting about himself, and you know, sort of depend. He he claims that he comes from an illustrious line. Although I mean, this depends on how you edit it. We have Cade saying, "I come from an illustrious line," but then the his his followers. I, in some versions, they are giving this as an aside. They are saying, oh, no, he's lying here. He's lying here. He's telling a joke. In some versions, they are just saying it out loud with him listening, which would imply that he does, He knows he's lying. He knows they know he's lying. He doesn't care. So he says, um, my father was a Mortimer. He was an honest man and a good bricklayer. My mother, a Plantagenet. I knew her well. She was a midwife. And so he's claiming, oh, I have a, I deserve to be king. I have a illustrious family line, but the other people are just chipping in and saying, oh, he's lying. And the, uh, I think this sort of ties into what, you know, York going on, look at my family line. Look at how long and illustrious my family line is. But no, fundamentally, it isn't about your family line. It's just that you want power. So it is sort of pointing out that none of this, these are all just trying to give incredibly shallow legitimacy to your desires for power is what this is saying i i always took it as kate knew this and this was kate going what what's it matter what your line is my father was a mortimer that doesn't mean anything 
Yes, it is. Yes, he is certain. Like for, at one point, he does uh, directly say, um, "Sort of." Stafford says, "Jack Cade, the Duke of York has taught you this. You know, he's, the Duke of York is pushing you along." And Cade says, "He lies, or I invented it myself." So like, yeah, I know I'm lying. I know I'm inventing all this. But yes, Cade is written quite charismatically, in my opinion. Yes, there's, there's some people that link this guy to the Lord of Misrule. Those those festival occasions where just for one day a year the lowest is replaced by the highest and the highest by the lowest. The masters serve the servants, that sort of thing. But he's trying to make this all year round. <sighs> but yeah, no, I don't want him to be king. But yeah, so hey, even if Henry is a wuss, at least he's not this fucking guy, Shakespeare seems to be saying. Yes, and to cut back to Henry, because we see, you know, we're introduced to Cade and how, you know, awfully is saying, let's kill the lawyers, that sort of thing. Uh, but then we cut to Henry and his court, or I think, are they at court? No, that were Henry and his court, and they're saying, oh, no, Cade's coming. And they hear, oh, no, he's breached the barrier. Oh, no, he's on London Bridge. Oh, no, he's coming. And so we really, we see them, but now we're in the terrifying position of being a king while a rebellion is just literally walking forward and forward and forward towards you. Look, I, I, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bothered by what you said there, not in that I disagree with any of it, but how easily you just glossed over kill all the lawyers. And finally, I, mean, I sort of pointed a... out as this is my favorite line in the whole play. And from a family of lawyers, I use this line a lot. Oh, the my parents are also lawyers, lawyers. And I, I entirely agree with the sentiment. And and that's one of the things I love. Cade gets some great lines too. He talks about hanging the guy with his pen. Um, and when someone points out his father, he says, yeah, but Adam was just a gardener. Oh, it is. Uh, villain, thy father was a plasterer, and thou thyselves a shearman, art thou not? And Adam was a gardener. <laughs> and I, I just I just love some of the lines in in it. But yeah. Um, Kill All the Lawyers is probably my biggest connection to this play. And if this play has to survive, then it survives for that line. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, he does say quite a lot of outrageous things. Even at one point, he he kills two men, cuts off their heads, and then makes their heads kiss each other. Yeah. (laughs) It is. This is certainly the most memorable scene in the entire play. And, you know, give, so I, I've read, you know, he, he is the person who wants to kill the literate. He's the person who wants to kill the educated. He says the world was never good when the gentleman popped up. And But I, I in Schoenbaum, his documentary about, you know, his uh, biography about Shakespeare, Schoenbaum suggests that maybe the treatment of the educated people in this, it's not entirely meant to show um, Cade in a bad light. It's just sort of Shakespeare's, continued insulting of the school system like in all these other places oh it's like when a boy is dragged along to school and how awful school is this is just the sort of um a bit of uh, catharsis he's saying oh finally i can kill all the awful educated people who made me go to school that sort of thing the school boy desire to destroy a school that's kind of cute but yeah it's, i think it's cute that in the way that it's so pretty I just want to um, carry on my um, previous uh, 
role that Shakespeare assigned Jack Cade, like for me, it feels like to the aristocrats, he's going, yeah, yeah, no, Henry's not that great, but at least he's not this fucking guy, right? Like, come on. He's try. he's, he may be a wuss, but he's a good king. He's a good boy. Wow. One of those telling- things where it's always, you know, the, the, the general argument as to why in monarchical society, oh, the reason why you shouldn't rebel is because, yes, king may be bad, but it's better than anarchy. It's better than anything you could put here, so therefore you should let us continue to cock things up. Oh, yeah, yeah, as much as I love Cade, I think the character is definitely created in a way to say, this is why you don't want commoners running your country. And But also at the same time, because he's so like chaotically charismatic, it gives the audience the masses the common um audience a bit of some bit of a bit of catharsis i guess of going yeah fuck him up guy like we don't actually want it's like you know loving deadpool or loving any violent um anti-hero where you like him because he's violent for you we don't want you in real life because oh god that would be awful but you know what having a little bit of that sweet sweet cathartic revenge on stage must be great. Then finally, you know, we have we sort of we also have that stereotype about the masses, the crowd being easily led, because we have Cade facing Clifford, and then essentially they they go back and forth. Where Clifford says, "No, turn against him," and they turn against him, and then Cade gives him another rousing sweet, and they go back to him. But then Clifford says something else, and they come back to him. And so, you know, that it's sort of a comedic flip-flopping of the crowd, just going backwards and forwards until eventually, uh, you know, I think Clifford at the end says, look, if you, if, you get, if you surrender now, the king will pardon you. And then Cade is utterly abandoned. And the way Cade is killed is by a guy called, what is like Robert Eden or something? Uh, a guy called Eden comes up and says, oh, I hate the, he's a guy, he's one of those people who says, uh, he's walking through the forest and he says, I hate the court, I hate the court, I hate the life of public and then he finds Jack Cade, and then they get into a scuffle, and then Eden kills him. And that's how Jack Cade dies. He had one act to make his mark, and he's killed by a guy who had only one scene in this entire play. I will like to point out, though, um, the fact that Greg reminded me um, has made the connection far more, obviously. Um, But Greg's like, hey, you know how Cade's like, well, Adam was a gardener, so why can't I? And this, you know, self-described current Adam is kicked um, off the mortal coil by a man named Eden. Oh, yes, that is Shakespeare loved the pun. A brilliant pun. That's great. Yes. See, Terrible. puns are good. Are they? Are they? And I- I've noticed that my notes for this have been just as long as my notes for the previous act and yet we've been going on for an incredibly short period of time because you know fundamentally yes Cade is very noticeable but uh, really when you think about it all his scene is is a heaping up of outrageous incidents there's not actually that much that happens here he he introduces himself he marches towards the London and then he's deserted that's all that happens here it it is I mean I like it but I mean, it is one. It is certainly more about being outrageous than uh, being a thick. That there is quite a lot of words here for very little plot movement. Which again, I like that. But I'm surprised. Yes, uh, I like that. Um, 
But finally, Henry pardons the rebels, but they but they realize, but you know, this is a typical tragic structure, a typical tragic structure where something seems to be at a high point. Oh, a happy ending is in sight. Oh, but no, now something terrible happens. The rebels are gone. Cade is dead. Ah, but York is marching in. Didn't York stop, though? He stops. He stops temporarily in the fifth act. But at the end of the fourth act, we learn that he is coming, marching in. Oh, okay, so that was still him. I thought it was maybe like a different... I guess I didn't... Again, I think I got a little bit tired. <laughs> and I will say that, I mean, I'm, I'm skipping ahead to act five a bit here, but King Henry's reaction to Cade's severed head it does seem a bit out of character for this too-good-for-this-world Christian king, because he's saying, The head of Cade, great God, how just art thou! Oh, let me view his visage, being dead, that living wrought me such exceeding trouble. Tell me, my friend, art thou the man that slew him? So he does, I mean, this is meant to be a good man, a God-fearing man, and yet he's holding a dead head and thinking, Oh, lovely, brilliant, I love this dead head in front of me. Huh, okay, if you put it that way... It just for me, it just seemed like, oh, thank God, just one thing that has gone right. Yeah, show it to me. Just I want to see if it's true. It's because it didn't really, to me, seemed like him going. Let me see the head. Oh yeah, I'm a bloodthirst, thirsty man. Yes, good, a dead head in front of me. Aha, you're dead, sucker. It was more to me. It was more of a, oh, thank God. So. He doesn't exist anymore. He he won't cause me any more trouble like everything else in my life. Show, show me proof. Show me proof. I just, I, I cannot bring myself to believe that nothing, that it's him, that this is it. This is fine. That I'm, that I'm done with this at least. And oh, sir, thank you. Thank you for bringing me this relief. It's, okay, what do you want? It's just, that's how I saw it. And fine. So I think that's. Do you have anything else to say about Act Four? It is the best act in the play, but fundamentally, not much happens in it. Perhaps that's for their benefit. Not much happens in it. It is. It does one thing very well. Is that does this fix your your um, views, Greg? Does this not overglut itself with lots of different things? Yes, except for you know, likewise, it could be removed. Yeah. <laughs> now, how about we just cut out Act Four and let Shakespeare throw in as many extra puns as you want, and call it Cade, and give give us that as the play. And now I seem. And now, actually, <laughs> we talk about how this is perhaps the most memorable part, and perhaps we could remove it, and perhaps Shakespeare could do something else. I think there was, I think the new Oxford edition of this play, they did their linguistic analysis, and they think that maybe Christopher Marlowe actually wrote these scenes. Mm, maybe that's why I like them so much. So does that uh, add to or detract from this, knowing that maybe Shakespeare didn't do these scenes? Um, I think that would explain why the play's a bit all over the place. Yeah, we need to get something done so we can all get paid, so... Let's not, uh, um, let's just bang this out. Oh, this doesn't really fit together. Well, let's just slot them together. People won't notice. It's like that thing in um, North by Northwest where Hitchcock says, 
well, how did the crop duster shooting plane know where the main character was? The audience isn't asking that in the moment, so therefore it doesn't matter. So if when you're watching this on stage and it's moving by, you don't question how the plot seems to be separate from all the... The plots rarely seem to interact with each other, how there seems to be so much stuff you could remove. No, you're just watching it go by. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if as you're enjoying it, you're just enjoying it. When you do the analysis, thinking... I, I I didn't enjoy it, and maybe th- that's where the analysis comes from: is me trying to understand why I didn't enjoy it. When realistically, the reason I didn't enjoy it could just as well have to do with the fact I've currently got the flu. Act five: York comes to London with soldiers backing him, but then Buckingham tells him to back off, back right off, York. And York, he, there's a sort of weird, I wasn't able to quite track his motivations and his thinking because York does seem to do a tactical retreat here. He does claim, oh, yes, oh, no, I'm not actually trying to go in and attack you, but um, I, I only brought these people back here because I thought the king was in danger. And I've killed Somerset because I thought that he was um, um, trying to hurt the king. And to which, but it does seem like he's tactically retreating it. He's backing off for the moment. But then uh, the king, he immediately defies the king in the king's presence. And then almost immediately at the end, he goes immediately to war with him. And all, I, I mean, noteworthy, noteworthy, this is the first time, this is the first time we meet the future Richard III. Do we, I mean, this stood out for me or? Do you think that's objectively something the the foreboding of what happens next is in here, or do you think that this is just because we know that he will become king and we know that there will be a much more famous play later on? I think this is a intentional Shakespearean move of oh oh yeah yeah this is this is the Richard you know and love this is the guy don't worry this is the intro this is. Nick Fury at the end of Iron Man. I was literally going to say that. Um, because He says, I, noble father, if our words will serve... So York says, because uh, the Queen Mar- he is arrested but will not obey. His sons, he says, shall give their words for him. And York says, will you not, sons? And Edward says, I, noble father, if words will serve. And then Richard immediately says, and if words will not, then our weapons shall. So he can't hold it back. He says, no, 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 we'll, we'll use our weapons. We'll, we'll fight. We'll beat. We'll yes, gore you all. So already we have his character in, in miniature here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he gets some good lines for, for such yes. a small role. Yes. Oft have he, I seen a... You'll surely sup in hell. Yes, he says, <laughs> oft have I seen a hot o'erweening cur run back and bite because he was withheld who being suffered with the bear's fell paw, hath clapped his tail between his legs and cried, and such a piece of service will you do if you oppose yourselves to match Lord Warwick. It's one of, it's one of those metaphors where you don't quite know what he's saying, where you think, oh, he, he's, being, he's being cruel there, certainly. Why Warwick? 
Hath thy knee forgot to bow? Old Salisbury, shame to thy silver hair, thou madness leader of thy brain-sick son. What, wilt thy on thy deathbed play the ruffian and seek for sorrow with thy spectacles? Oh, where is fate? Oh, where is loyalty? If it be banished from this frosty head, where shall it find a harbour in the earth? It's just like, oh, baby, I know you're sad and I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I'm you're s- going to prefer the next part. If I recall correctly, and I'm sorry to people if I am misremembering completely, but I think Henry grows some balls in part three. Yes, whereas in this one, he does seem almost willing to give it up before it's even begun. Uh, so, you know, York has now effectively declared war on him. And so Queen Margaret says, away, my lord, you are slow for shame, away. And King Henry says, can we outrun the heavens, good Margaret? So he's, he's basically, oh, look, look, um, God wants us to lose. We, we may as well not even try. So it, it, he is, he's willing. He, he's a person whose stoic attitude, one of those people where the stoic attitude of resignation just leads them to not doing anything. And he, Henry flees to London and York and co run after him. And then, and then we have a to be continued. Oh, looking up, I was wrong. Looking up, Henry gets worse. Oh, no. Yes. I always. You I was gave mis- me hope, sir. I was How dare you? Henry and Clifford. Oh, well. So fundamentally, this is at the end of this act, the War of the Roses begins. And I mean, this does end on, I mean, when it comes to talking about how these plays were made and how these plays were planned out, people will say, did Shakespeare plan to write a duology? Did he plan to write a trilogy? And reading the end of this, do you think that this would have been a satisfying ending? Or do you think that Shakespeare was saying, oh, no, 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 buy my tickets and let me make a sequel? Oh, yeah, this is definitely... uh a lead up to something rather than a something in itself. Um, I think it is definitely, I think on its own, it actually is perfectly fine. Um, it does have that Iron Man moment, as you say, yeah, we're starting the Avengers and, you know, historically, at least the, um, upper class would have been taught what happens. So, they would say, oh, yeah, and this is after this, we win. After this, we win. Um, and they don't really care whether they, like, watch more or not. Or well, maybe they do. They just want it, you know, to be dramatized. But um, I think this is very much a, hey, this is a full piece. I can create another one if you want me to. I'm more than willing. See, I dangled a few threads for you to pick up on and put pull at if you want me to write it. Um, this the Wachowskis doing the first scene from the Matrix in order to get funded for the rest of it. Yeah, I th- yeah, it's, <laughs> that's it. Because um, that that kind of explains the part two. If he just you know had put this in as Henry the Sixth, and I mean it w- wasn't originally called either of those things though. What was it called? Um, I did mention it was called the contention of something. Um. Or at least we don't know what it was called as a play when it first appeared. Um, but when it was first published, it was called... I'm going to look this up. 
Uh, it was called The First Part of the Contention Betwixt the Two Famous Houses of York and Lancaster with the death of good Duke Humphrey, the banishment and death of the Duke of Suffolk, and the tragical end of the proud Cardinal of Winchester, with the notable rebellion of Jack Cade and the Duke of York's first claim unto the crown. Whew. That's that's the entirety of the title. That's a, web, that's a web novel. That's a web novel title. Um, this is before books had blurbs, and so the title really needed to do a lot. I mean, it, even... Charles Dickens had this sort of title. Um, it, it's, it was popular all the way into the 20th century. Thank goodness it died. Um, let's see. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be known as the first part with the expectation that part three would be known as the second part or the true tragedy. Um, uh, at one point, Parts two and three were published together, so it does give the impression that this was always supposed to be the first half of a larger piece. It might not have been that there ever would have been a part one, but it sounds like there was intentionally always going to be a part three. Which would kind of make sense, I think. But yeah, this, I'm just... this certainly feels like it starts at a starting point, so it kind of makes sense to me. Where is that goddamn quote about him not wanting to be king? Oh, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Was ever was ever king that joyed an earthly throne and could command no more content than I? No sooner was I crept out of my cradle, but I was made a king at nine months old was never subject longed to be a king as I do long and wish to be a subject. And, okay, it's entirely possible that David Tennant's um, delivery of those, of that paragraph was just that good, but that was the part that made me go, okay, yeah, there was no escaping for you from this tragedy because you clearly just, you just don't want to be king. You've been king so long and it's he's never not going to be king until he is either killed or or he dies naturally. So he, until death is he king and he does and that's a cage it, it is an earthly cage from which he has no escape. Any of us like we're going to go through and first say one thing that we like about this play. Greg, what's one thing that you liked about this play? There, there are a lot of little things I liked about this play. Um, I liked Eleanor. I liked the character of Eleanor, and I, I liked the Act Four Cade scenes and i like that yeah you, you you if you view the play as early attempts by shakespeare of a lot of things i like that we get to see these and go oh i recognize this from when he did it better so i like those sorts of things about it sophie one thing you liked about this i liked a lot of things like it's I liked Henry as a character. 
Um, I liked Margaret as a character as well. Terrible person, good character. Same goes for Eleanor. Um, there's actually a lot of characters I liked. Um, I didn't like the plot, mostly because it is overstuffed. It is quite tiring. This, there are so many of them, but the ones that stood out are the good ones. Like, you could probably get away with just having Margaret, Eleanor, Gloucester, Suffolk, and no one else. Like, you didn't really... Okay, I suppose fucking Walter. Although, personally, his death would have been better served if it was announced to... If he had just died off stage, killed by pirate Walter, and Henry would have been like, oh... Oh, that prophecy, was that what it was talking about? And Margaret's just face draining and she's like wailing and Henry's like, and Henry could have his moment of, wait, you you don't really care about me, but you clearly care about Suffolk. What What's going on, girl? Um, and have another opportunity for, um, you know, breaking. But... Yeah, I really, I just liked the series of characters that existed in this, in this play, and the lovely moments they had of, of dramatic soap opera humanity. And what I liked about this play was that I feel that this is the first play where every line and every sequence seems to have the language that we know Shakespeare for. Just on a line-by-line, word-by-word level, he has gotten it down. He knows how to rhetorically structure a speech, how to make dialogue go back and forth. This is, as I said, this is the first Shakespeare play that we've done that I've liked. And now for one thing we didn't like about this. Greg, I sense that it's going to be most of it. Ah, oh, look, it's, it's one thing, but it's a major thing. And that it is a very busy play for no reason. Other than because fans expect all these things. Yeah. And that's basically it. It it isn't a good play as a whole. It has lots of great writing, lots of great scenes, a couple of great characters, but it is not a great play. Sophie. Yeah, it definitely needs trimming. It's it is you. It's I'm mostly going to repeat what Greg said, um, and say it's not a good read. It's for a play because there's just too many element elements happening at once. But it's it could be a really good play if everything else about the play compensates for that. Um, you know, so choreography, stage direction, um, music, costumes, all that other stuff that would elevate the messiness of the play would make it an exquisite thing to watch, I think. But yeah, reading it is a slog. And my negative thing is that I do feel that the witchcraft angle 
is really brought up and doesn't really go anywhere. I, I would at least either I would like that specific part of the Eleanor plot to be removed, or frankly, go into it a bit deeper. Frankly, rather than just have her summon a devil and then immediately forget about it. That was episode six of Shakespeare and Pals, where we listened to Henry the Sixth, part two. And next time, next time, let's go into one of Shakespeare's influences, one of the first duologies of the, the early modern English stage, Christopher Marlowe's Tamerlane, part one. Thank you for listening to episode six of Shakespeare and How. The sources in today's episode were The Life of the Author, William Shakespeare, by Anna Beer, William Shakespeare, A Compact Documentary Life, by S. Schoenbaum, The Oxford Shakespeare, Henry VI, Part Two, and Shakespeare, The Critical Heritage, edited by Brian Vickers. Thank you for listening.